today, what we're going to spend the next little bit doing <coughs> is the following. Is I'd like to go through a few ideas which resonated with me, and I'd like to share them with you as you prepare for your <coughs> Take them, think with them, use them the way that you'd like to, whether it be that you share them or whether it be that you use them uh, or, or that you just contemplate them. I'm going to try to go across a, a very vast array of ideas in the sense of we're going to move from ideas in history to halacha, to machshava, to nach, to pilpul, very different types of ideas to get a different array of ideas as we prepare, prepare ourselves for Pesach. So that's at the very, very beginning. This year, we're going to start off with halach ma'anya. We're going to start off with the first section that we start off with over here, the Babylonian dilemma. Now, there's a very interesting thing that happens. Before we start our whole seder, before the child gets on the table, on the chair, and starts singing and manishana, and everything's wonderful, we say this statement in Aramaic. Now, folks, I don't know about you, but I don't order my coffee in Aramaic. Nobody speaks Aramaic today. You know, the last time you speak Aramaic is when you're trying to work out that Gomorra before looking at the translations. It's very unusual. What is going on over here? We, we, we have this whole little paragraph called Halach Mani before the Haggadah starts, and it seems very anachronistic, seems very out of place. How do we understand what's really going on in the introduction to the Haggadah? Moreover, if we look at the Halach Mani, it's a little bit of an unusual paragraph for a number of, a number of reasons. We start off by saying, Halach Mani, these are, these are, this is the poor man's bread, the Yachalab on the side of the Irish of Mitzrayim, that they ate in their land of Egypt. And then we say, um, let me make this announcement of, of invitation. Kol dich ben yeser v'yisach, kol dich dizrich yeser v'yechal, that we're going to have anybody who's in need should come in. <coughs> now, at this point in time, if somebody does not have state of plans, you're not helping them. In the comfort of your home, with the door closed and everybody sitting around where you've managed to pack in 15 people into a dining room which really holds 14 people. At this point in time, your announcement is, not, is, a, is a very nice gesture, but it is not going very far. So it seems very unusual. And then finally, you end up the paragraph by saying, you end up, end up the paragraph by saying, You know, like in this year, we're, we're fine. Next year, we're going to be free. And it doesn't even seem to work with the pattern of what the paragraphs say. The paragraph seems to have like three different parts. There's, okay, there's the, the poor man's thing we're eating. Then there's the invitation to the public, which doesn't it seems to be more of a gesture than a real invitation. And then we start talking about, you know, gu'ula. So, first of all, it's very unusual that we even have it in the first place. And number two is all the different parts don't seem to add up to each other. Very, very strange. So, to, for, this, for, the, for this particular um, section of the Haggadah, what I did was I went to what's called the historical Haggadah. <coughs> and so this is a very interesting Haggadah. It's put up by a person called by uh, Nachman Cohen, who's, uh, who, who does a lot of research um, at, at Yeshiva University. When I used to work there, I used to see him every morning. Um, and uh, um, and we, he used to go, he used to be coming up for his breakfast, <coughs> and I would be arriving early. And so we, we, we used to have the opportunity of chatting every morning. And he gave me his Haggadah. He teaches in Azriel. He is a very interesting researcher. He's put out a lot of very interesting academic works, and he, in his historical Agada, he adds a different perspective to Agada. So he asks a very interesting question, that is, when do you think this first appeared? That's the, meaning historically speaking, when was the first time Halach Ma'anya potentially hit the Agada mainstream? Or what would your guess be? Well, that's so, it makes sense at the time of Babel, but, let, but let's, let, let's, let's put this, the question this way. Does Halach Ma'anya appear in the Seder Haggadah as described by the Mishnah and Gomorrah? No. No. And the answer is no. It doesn't appear at the times of the Mishnah and the Gomorrah in... Now, Arab Sachim is replete with all the parts of the Haggadah that we have. So if you're learning through the parak of Arab Sachim, the last parak, the 10th parak of Sachim, you'll find most of our Haggadah is there. However, you don't find Halach Ma'anya there, which means to say that it must have been... must have been... It must have been afterwards, right? Now, if it was afterwards, let's say, when was, when was the Gomorrah closed? 
Gemara, because it doesn't appear in the Gemara either. So when was the Gemara closed? Around the year 500, the end of the 6th uh, century. Okay? So that's true. That means to say that Halachma is appearing, Halachma Ali is appearing at a period in time, about five, uh, perhaps 500 years post-destruction, where there are Jews still living in Aramaic-speaking lands, right? In the Babylonian area, kind of area in the area of Iraq, Iran. Um, area now, which is which is which is very fascinating because I used to say that now essentially we have a prayer or statement which is post Talmudic, which is appearing in the Haggadahs for people who are still living in this time when they're speaking Aramaic, which is fascinating over here. And you see, maybe what he is is maybe actually this paragraph is not so much of a statement but rather a question. You see, in the end of the day, if we look back into every other exile, every other exile had a tenure, had a particular. End. I mean, you say, Goddess Mitzrayim, 400 years, maybe 210 years, we'll come back to that a little bit later. There was an ending point. <coughs> when they went down to Bavel, how long was it? 70. 70 years. There's two ways of working out where the 70 started and it ended. When it came to Pras, the Persian, or the Greeks, there was an end. We, th there was a particular end to it. Here you have people who are sitting 500 years from destruction of the Basin Midrash, and they're still in Goddess. This is the longest experience a Jew has ever had in exile. And the question is, is <coughs> We're eating the same poor man's bread, but what? There's no end. We're still here. We're still in Babylon. We're still in the rivers of Babylon in the end of the day. Right? So Babylon, we think of, when we think about Babel, we think, oh, Babel, God is Babel. That was the way before. That was the end of the first base of Middash. They're still there now at the end of the second base of Middash, post the Gomorrah, and they're still staying there. They're in Surah, they're in Pompadissa, they're in Master Machasya, they're in the, all these areas where the, the famous Talmudic academies were of the, of, the, of the Talmud, and there's no Geula. Is there an end? You know the way that it's described in the, in the, the, in the Haftorah we read on Pashas Vayishlach, which is the, the book of Avadia, talks about how, um, how when um, Yaakov was looking up, at the, uh, actually it's based, on, it's based on a Medrash, which interprets that when Yaakov is looking up the ladder and he sees the angels going up, he sees that each angel, there's four angels, one of each of the Goliaths, and each one went up to a certain rung and fell down. And 70 rungs for, the, for Babylon, and it carries on going for, for the Persia, and then for, you, for Greece. And then he saw the angel of, of Rome rising and rising and rising, and the angel never came down. And that's when Hashem, he says, Hashem, is there no end to this? Hashem says, in Takbiyah Kanesha, if you're going to go as high as the eagle, I'll bring you down from there. And you say, even though you think it's never ending, it's going to end. The question of Allah is, we're still here, we're still in Goddess, we're still eating the poor man's bread. Is this like Egypt anymore? Why is this? Why aren't we arguing over this? <coughs> so the, the answer of the, of, the, of the paragraph suggests is, The Gemara says, uh, the Gemara says, about us, let's see if I put it in here. One second. Um, the Gemara says, here we go. This is the Gemara about Abbas. The Gemara says, Tanya, Rabbi Yoda Amer, <laughs> says that one of the keys to, to, to actually bringing the redemption earlier is tzedakah. There's two ways. There's a machlokas in the Gemara when redemption is going to happen. Is it going to happen in Nisan or is it going to happen in Tishrei? And the two, the two different models are depending on the types of geula. In Tishrei, it is a, a geula of din. Are we worthy of it? And then a geula of, of Nisan that we might be that we might have discussed over here is not alpidin. Maybe we don't deserve it. But maybe if we went the extra mile, if we went out of our way for other people, maybe that allows Hashem to go out of His way for us. We don't necessarily deserve it. Sadak is Makarevis Zagula. Says the response in the paragraph is, we're still in Babylon, but you know the way out of Babylon, you know the way maybe we might get a little step in incrementally closer, is 
is we go out of our way when we go before Pesach and we spend the time thinking about other people. Call this trick, yes, every Yusuf. That's the way. That, that's the way it, um, it, um, it potentially works, and that's why, and that's why it says, and that's um, the end of the paragraph. This is from the uh, historical Agora. This then explains the continuity of Halach Ma'anya paragraph. It begins with the question: What is the point of celebrating Exodus when we're now in Galus? The answer is: It is important to celebrate the ex- Egyptian Exodus because it helps us appreciate the following concept. If every householder fulfills the mitzvah tzedakah and declares, "All who are hungry come and eat," all those who are needy come and celebrate Pesach meal then while at present we are here, next year we are likely to be living in Israel. While this year we are saved, next, next year we will be free. What the, what the answer of the paragraph is, it's dealing with the person, it's dealing with the Jew in the mud of exile. And the answer the paragraph gives is, is if you're able to extend yourself, then that's the key to Hashatahacha, the Shalabah, Baradi Israel. That's the only way we can get, get out of here, is extending ourselves. Because if we extend ourselves, maybe, 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 Akash Baruch will extend himself. You know, this is very important that it comes at the beginning. You know, because whatever you come in, uh, whatever you see, whatever signs you see at the beginning sets the tone for the whole enterprise. You know, when, you go, when you're driving through New Hampshire, anybody been through New Hampshire recently? If you're going, past to Vermont, you're going to Vermont, you have to cut through the bottom, the bottom corner of New Hampshire. There are two triangles next to each other. So you cut through the bottom of New Hampshire. What's the, what's the, the signs you always see on the highway when you get into New Hampshire? Welcome to New Hampshire. Welcome to New Hampshire. And? And? What? Duty-free alcohol. Right? <laughs> uh, New Hampshire's got duty free alcohol. You don't need to go to the airport. Forget the airport. Go to New Hampshire. Right? The next time you pass by, no taxes on alcohol. That says a lot about a state, right? Um, you say, whatever the sign is at the beginning, it's telling you what it's all about. What are we doing? We're starting the Seder. And, the, and there's the signpost at the beginning. It says, is, what is the Seder about? Why are we still in God? Why are we talking about Exodus? Well, the answer is, is if we just do this, we might get incrementally closer. That's the signpost of how I, how I got to start. That's what Chazal trying to inculcate in us. This is very much an exile-based paragraph. That's why it remains in Aramaic, because it's talking to the Jew in exile. And it's perhaps talking to the Jew of how we get out of exile. Yeah. That's potentially what's going on. You have to say this if you're living in Israel? That's a very good question. So this is a general question, you know. Is, well, is in, in Israel today, is a part of the part, are we still in Golas? The answer is, is unfortunately very much so. Unfortunately very much so. You know, as much as we walk in the streets of Yerushalayim freely and we, and we, we, every step of the way, we think, thank God that we're here in 50 years, we've been able to go to the, to, to, to the, to the old city. At the same time, you know, the static attack yesterday is a, is, a, is a reminder. The fact that every time we pick up a brick, the whole international community screams murder, you know, reminds us that we're very far away from, um, from the destination. So this is the first point of the side. This is our signpost to start the Seder. Let's move a little further. The next, the next section is the Seder in Bnei Brak. Now, this Seder in Bnei Brak, um, has a lot of very fascinating backgrounds to it. Um, and, you know, the Rabbonim are gathering around the table, these five Rabbonim, why these five Rabbonim, why this night, why B'nai Brak? what were they talking about, why was it all night? There's so many great questions, we've dealt with a lot of these things in the past, not going to focus on all those specifics now. I want to deal with really a halachic question. This is a very fascinating aspect over here. This is a question, there's a Haggadah called the Chashukei Chemet. Anyone know who wrote the Chashukei Chemet? Rabbi Zilberstein, right? So Rabbi Zilberstein is a poistek in B'nai Brak. So we know Torah of Bnei Brak. Rosalbushan is a is a in Brak. He is a very unusual person. If you read through any of his any of his questions and answers, the most radical questions and answers you've ever come across. Um, 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 he has a Nakumura, he has a responsa, and they, they took some of his responsa to the, to, the, to the Seder. So a lot of them are actually very general questions. I want to deal with one. This is a very un, unusual question. He asked the following question. So the um, this is the question that he was asked. Again, this, is, this relates to this particular incident. Let's remember what happens at the end of the incident. They're learning, they're learning, they're learning. What happens? 
עד שבו תלמידיהם, אצול לתלמידים, כמה הם סד? רבו סד הגיע הזמן קריאה שמה של? רבו סד הגיע הזמן קריאה שמה של? רבו סד הגיע הזמן ברגעים And this may not be available all the time, but if one is able to, at certain points in the year, to go to a place where there's a particular Rebbe that we have, a particular person who's, who's, who is of great spiritual magnitude, to go daven there. You know, if that means to say that once, you know, once or twice a year, to go daven in, in, in YU to be near Rav Shechter. You know, if it means to say that there's certain Rabbonim, there's certain people in Eretz Yisrael we can go to and visit and we have a chance to daven with them. The Chassim Sofi says we should do this. Why? He says because we learn this from Chanan. He learns when Chana, who's really sets up a template of Tzvila, it says that she dabbed very close to Eli HaKoyim when she was dabbing for a child. So she was, she, uh, and the, uh, the Chassam Sefer says, do we deduce from here? That it's important, to, it's almost like that person's an antenna, and you want to be close to the antenna, the Wi-Fi is strongest as the, the closer you are. Right? So that's what, the, that's what the, we learn from here. So the question that the, the Rosenstein asks is the following. What happens if these poor, these poor timid Talmudim are knocking on the door, and their teachers... who are of you know, great spiritual magnitude, are, are, are learning, and they, and they don't interrupt. So we have now a choice. Should they wait for their Rabbonim a couple hours until everything wraps up, and then they can daven with them? Or should they daven now with the Neitzah Chava? That's the halachic question he asks. Meaning, is the value of davening in the proximity of a holy individual something which, which one should wait for, or should one daven early? One should daven at the first point. What is the greater value? So asks the Chashukai Chemed. Uh, or he, he is asked, which is a very interesting question. These are two values in tension over here at this particular point. So what does he answer? He says the following. Mistaber, he says, it makes sense. Sha'atifli ispal imanates. One should have an earlier, even in the absence perhaps of one's teacher, if that was the trade-off. Mishum shemalazuk suva begumora umerumezes benavi. Because davening with the Neitzah Chama is already written in the Gemara. The Gemara tells us in Brachos in a number of places the best time to daven is with the Neitzah. It's the earliest time possible. He says, but davening with a holy person is not explicitly written in the Gemara. It's the Chassam Soifer's deduction from the Chana episode. But the Gemara doesn't actually mention it. So therefore, if we have two values at stake, what we do is we weigh them against each other. <laughs> one is actually mentioned in Chazal, the one is not mentioned in Chazal, so the one mentioned in Chazal davening earlier would actually trump the davening with, um, with, um, with, with the Tzadik, which is a very fascinating thing. He says, another example, another case in point, Lahalacha. Erev Chanukah, Shabbos Chanukah, what happens? There's, you know, there's a, there, there's a minhag to try to daven The mincha before, as always, is a very hectic afternoon. This is why you should all go to South Africa for Hanukkah, <laughs> when it's the summer, and then you never have an issue. But here it is one of those early Shabbos. The Shabbos is coming in at 4.15. You're supposed to daven mincha before you light the Hanukkah candle. So what are you supposed to do? <coughs> so many, many cases, what, what happens if there's no minion? You're in a place where there is no minion beforehand, and now the question is, do you daven with a minion before, um, after the Hanukkah candles? You, are, you come from home and you come in and daven in shul. With a minion, do you daven the Echidus beforehand? So again, he applies the same logic. 
the davening with the minion is mentioned in the Gemara. That's that's mainstream. That's tefillah b'tzibur. Davening for Hanukkah candles is, is mentioned in the Poskim post Gemara, and therefore in that case the trade-off would be you'd go with a minion because that's the more that's the, the higher in the in the totem pole. Just an interesting uh, an interesting application of here. There are halachas and there are halachas. It depends how far you can draw those halachas back. And this is what Rabbi Zilber is saying over here. This is based on the extrapolation of that story. What would happen in the next step after the story itself? Very interesting halachic point which emerges from this uh, from this Gemara. One of the things we can garner from this is a lot of times we don't have a trade off. A lot of times you can do both. So what happens if you're able to you're able to find an opportunity to dive on the side and take opportunity? There's no way to there's a way to, to be able to go there, to do this. What was that? Dive on the at Nate's. What was that? At Nate's. At Nate's, exactly. So there, there. <laughs> go to go to the console on Shabbos. Double and never sold. Go to his kitchen. There's, there's so many opportunities to be able to do this, and there, there are amazing opportunities. To really, this is this is our reinvigoration. This is what we're all about. But that's Tip. what you can see. That's why they went to them at the beginning. This is the double. Exactly, and that's why they went to the beginning. Right. You know, that that's why they <coughs> because they wanted to have the, the two little in the rabbi. What happens if the rabbi were not being finished yet? That's the question he's asking. Just a fascinating game. This is a very different type of insight. This is a halachic insight into the Haggadah story itself. Let's move a little further into another, a completely different arena. Let's, let's take a look over here. The simple son. Can we get to the Arab The simple son. Now, most people think when they look at the, 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 the Ben Hatan, they say, hmm, this Ben Hatan, you know, he's the kind of, you know, the, the, what, what's the picture you would draw? You know, a little, a little kid with a pacifier, you know, with big eyes sitting at the edge of the table, you know, table up to his nose, you know, Ben Hatan. And his question is the simple words, Mazos, what's this, right? So that's kind of like, you know, that's the, the, the sum, sum total of intellectual capacity that this, this, little, this little boy has. Um, however, it's interesting to know the following. How do we know that there are four questions in the first place? Meaning, where do we get that from? Where did I got to decide that there's going to be four questions? What about seven? Aren't we, can we be a little more democratic over here? Why four? So the answer is, is because if you look in the Torah, the Torah describes an interaction between a child and a parent four times in the Torah. And based on the way we see those interactions, the context of those interactions, we deduce what type of child is asking. So here we go. Here's where the Benatam arrives. Um, one second. Um, here we go. Here's the Benatam. This is in the end of Parashas Bay. This is where most of the sons appear. And the, this is the context of the Benatam. It says the following. So following it says, God says, I redeemed you, I made, um, and I made sure that your firstborn did not die, so therefore you're going to redeem firstborn children, you're going to redeem firstborn kosher animals. All good. Okay, I understand that. Because all of them were slated for destruction, therefore all of them need redemption. Good. That makes a lot of sense. Here's the part that doesn't make sense. The next part says, If you have a firstborn donkey, you also need, a, a need to, uh, to, uh, to redeem it, and if not, you need to break its neck. And any firstborn child you should redeem. And then, following this, the, the Torah tells us, And now your son says, what is this? Right, that's our time, right? Those are the words for the time, then we know, um, here's the better time, we'll see in just a second why. But if you just think about this for, for a second, let's do the spiritual algebra for a quick, a quick moment. When you do redemption, what does that mean? What is it telling us about the, uh, the item you're redeeming? Tells you that? Well, there's some element of it which is godly, meaning there's something to it, there's some sort of spiritual residue that needs to be redeemed onto, let's say money, onto something else, that you need to discharge that Kedusha, otherwise you can't have access to it, whether it be a Bukhar Adam, whether it be Bukhar Bahama. And that makes a whole lot of sense in certain contexts. But at the end of the day, when was the last time you ate donkey? <laughs> meaning, in, in the end of the day, let's be honest with ourselves. A donkey isn't kosher, wasn't kosher, and won't be kosher. A donkey is not part of the, 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 the rubric of, of kosher animals. 
So where exactly is this Kedusha coming from? And that's exactly what the sun is saying. The sun is saying, Mazos, what, what pray tell is going on over here? And that's, by the way, why many of the Forshim say that this is the better time, because he's responding to, he's responding to a, a, we'll call it an anomaly, a very unusual situation. So as opposed to a Chacham, he's asking in a vacuum. As a, you know, the the better time is responding to like you know sort of like well that that is a little bit of a hair raising uh, you know situation so we say okay he must be a more he needs stimulation to ask his question that's why we have <coughs> the better time also his question is very simply worded now this is this is fascinating so what is the answer to the better time I mean well, well, how does this work why is the chamor so so important so I'd like to just move to uh, to Rav Cook for this Rav Cook has a uh, let's see if we can get there. Um, um, I, I, actually, Rav Cook has a siddur called Oilas Ri'iyah. Okay, so as you see here, there's Rav Cook. That was when he was speaking, actually, in the his later life. Rav Cook has a siddur called Oilas Ri'iyah. Oilas Ri'iyah is his pure of siddur. And this, this particular point over here is not to be found in the Haggadah section in the volume 2. It's in volume 1, where he talks about the paragraphs, which are in the Tfilin. And this is one of the paragraphs, which is in the Tfilin, of Ayaki Shalcham Bilcham Mar. <coughs> so, so this is the, the, the area of the Bukhar. Now, on this section he has a very fascinating and profound point, um, which really is, 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 is a game-changer if we're able to appreciate what's, what's going on over here. Um, this is a point that Rav Cook really lived in his life. This is something which he himself experienced and lived himself. So here's what he says. Um, he says, you know, oftentimes the word Chamor doesn't only mean donkey, the word chamor is very much related to what words? What what basically oh, words? Chomer. Chomer means literally words. Material. Material, right? So a, a donkey also means the notion of material. And sometimes you look around the world and you say, hey, that's so interesting that um, that I look at some very earthly, very mundane, very very much we'll call it, you know, um, pedestrian items or enterprises in this world. And we say, you know. There couldn't possibly be Kedusha there. And we ask the question of the Benatam, and we say to him, we say, there's movements, there's ideas, which seem to us very lowly, very much material. And the Torah tells us that somehow, somewhere, there is a way to look at them and realize that there is Kedusha in them themselves. When Hashem redeemed us from Mitzrayim, somebody could have asked the same question about us. And they could have said, those people, those Hebrews, those Hebrews who have barely anything to their name, any, any spiritual resume that they can present to anybody. We had the, at the Kriyas Yamsos, the angel said, we are, very, very, we are very similar to the Egyptians. My Kosh Baruch says, you know what, I'm able to discern, even in the complicated, even in the mundane, even in the Chomrius, I'm able to discern that there's Kedusha. It says, it says, Mazois, sometimes you need to ask yourself, what is in there? What can I see in the lowest? That's what the, the, the question of the time is, is to be able to appreciate that. And sometimes I wonder, he doesn't say this, but I think to myself, sometimes it requires a little bit of simplicity in life. Sometimes we're so complex, we're so sophisticated, it's hard to see that. Because we're, we're, so, we're, we're, we're so above and so beyond these people that we look at, and we say, is there Kedusha in that person? Is there Kedusha in that, in that enterprise, in that holiness? And that's what Rav Kook himself. This is how Cook, Rav Cook lived his life. You see, this is not just a vort. This is Rav Cook's perspective on life. You know, the rest of the world looked at, looked, looked at the Zionist movement. And the Zionist movement was, at best, apathetic to religion, on the whole, excluding the religious Zionists. At, uh, in reality, oftentimes it was anti-religious in many, uh, in many camps of the Zionist movement. And many people say, many people wrote them off. Many of Gedali Israel said, no, this is not, it's not worth bending down, stooping, getting involved with. Close the doors. Rav Cook went out to dance with the Chalutzim. 
He went and he said, you know, that I understand that there's a lot of bad over here. But that, 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 that initiative, that will and, and want to, to be part of Israel, even though it comes with nothing else, in that very chamor, in that chavrus, <coughs> I see that there's Kedusha. I want you to, to just quote to you, to you a, mo a, most remarkable, a most remarkable example of this. Let's see if we can get there for, um, in a second. Sorry, this, um, this version is a little hard to, to uh, use. Here we go. This over here is, as it goes back, <coughs> is a translation of a speech Rav Kook gave in 1904. So to give you this, give the context. This is one of the most favorite speeches of Rav Kook. Rav Kook <coughs> arrived in Israel. Really, I think it was the end of 1903, and he became the he got the position of being the um, the Rav Roshi of Yafo, the old city of Yafo. That's how he came to Israel at, um, at the beginning. And a few short months after his arrival in Israel, there um, was the death of Theodor Herzl. Theodor Herzl was working extremely hard at this point in time to gather support um, for, uh, for the Zionist dream. And he died for many reasons why people said that the stress of the split in the Zionist movement was, was behind it. There's a lot of very fascinating history. And, and nobody on, in a religious camp would say anything. Nobody was going to say say boo about uh, Theodor Herzl. He came to Yerushalayim and he gave what was called the Hesped Yerushalayim for Theodor Herzl. He got a lot of, into a lot of trouble for this. He goes so far as to suggesting that even Theodor Herzl might be part of the machinations of Mashiach Ben Yosef. Really strong, strong stuff. And he talks about Mashiach Ben Yosef, Mashiach Ben, 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 ben David, and the two ideas of Yehuda and Yosef. Very, very fascinating. At the end, he quotes the Gemara. The Gemara says, talking about Mashiach, it says that many of the Amorites said, When Mashiach comes, I don't want to be present. It's too difficult. It's going to be such a hard time in history. I don't want to be present. Rav Yosef says the most interesting thing. Rav Yosef says, <coughs> I want to be there at the times of Mashiach, and I'm going to sit in the shadow of the dung of his donkey. And so that's what Rav Yosef says. I want to sit in the shadow of the dung of the donkey of Mashiach. One of those strange things. So he has a translation. This is Betzalel Naor's translation of his speech. He says, the shadow of the dung of his donkey, the word... Chamore, his donkey, is above, uh, the word Chamore, by a double entendre, refers to material, Chomer. Again, the same idea Rakuk was talking about in his, in his Siddur. Customarily, devotion to the material affairs of the nation clouds spiritual ascent. Even so, if this movement would not be so audacious as to spread in a way unbecoming Israel, it would be easy to accept. Were it not for its extremism, the movement <coughs> would not find a press in the spirit of Torah and would not attack the foundation of Torah, which is tantamount to the blinding eye of the world. But the dung, the gross tendencies that are loathsome to all the peoples, produce a shadow that dims the pure intellectual light deriving from Torah. So what you, what would you think is, let's avoid that dung, let's avoid that donkey. Now, nonetheless, Rav Yosef was confident that eventually all these negative manifestations would surrender to the light of Torah and the knowledge of God. Rav Yosef will sit in the shadow of the dung of Messiah's donkey, in the very midst of darkness, of the shadow, rendering like night in the midst of the noonday, yeah, Rav Yosef will light the candle of the commandment and the light of the Torah, and a little light dispels <coughs> much darkness. That's a very famous quote from him. The evil will, will be transformed into good, the curse into blessing. This is the import of the cryptic passage in the Zohar. The head of the academy in the palace of Mashiach said, Whoever does not transform darkness to light and bitterness to sweetness may not enter here. The prerequisite for the regeneration of Mashiach is the ability to utilize all forces, even the most coarse, for the sake of good. That a more remarkable idea. Rav Kook wasn't giving a vort on the Haggadah. He wasn't giving a vort in the Pasha's void. He was living an ideology of how he looked at what everybody else was looking at and moving away holding their noses. And he said, there's something to be said over here. That is remarkable. And I think the lesson that we need to take from it is who asks the question is the Ben Sometimes it requires a little more simplicity in our lives. Just, just, just taking it and saying, you know what? 
There's something to be said of here. We can gain something. What a remarkable point, what a remarkable historical point Rav Cook is adding to Ochaz over here. What about the Benatam? Let's move a little further on. What is next? Oh, so the converging of history. This is really a remarkable, remarkable point. This is a, 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 a historical, but also um, also a, uh, a peel pull note. This is one of my most favorite words that, that I learned uh, at least 15 years ago, and I, I try to repeat it every time I possibly can. Um, so the, 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 the Haggadah says the following. The, the, the Haggadah says, <coughs> says um, Hashem kept his, 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 his promise to Israel. What promise did Hashem give to Israel about redemption? So Hashem said it. Don't worry, there's going to be a time I'm going to, you're going to go into the, into the depths, I'm going to pull you out. Great. Hashem calculated the end. To do what he did, what he calculated with Avram, at the covenant of the parts. So Hashem says, after 400 years, I'm going to, I'm going to redeem you. So Hashem, fantastic, you worked it out. You calculated, you whipped out a calculator, you got it all right. Now, folks, I don't mean to be the, you know, the, to, to dispel, you know, all the excitement in, the, in this paragraph over here, but it wasn't really 400 years, meaning like we're saying, okay, wonderful. Hakadosh Baruch Hu, really? Hashem, really work out the, the cakes that well? Meaning, if you, if you work out the amount of years that they were in Egypt, the years are a little closer to 210. You know, so, you know, we can prorate it, but it, it, ain't, it, it ain't 400. So how does that work? Well, he said he worked out the cates. He worked it out. The cates is 190, right? Okay, so, so one second. So there's, so there's lots of different ways of doing this. So one of the famous ways of understanding it is, is, that, is that really what happened over here is, is how did it work? So what's, what's the answer? What was that? Okay, so there's, 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 there's a few different tracks of answers. So let's take a look at this. Um, here we go. Here, let's take a look. If we get our pictures over here. Here we go. So one, one way of working it out is, when it starts from Yitzhak Avinu, right? Meaning to say, if you work out the birth of Yitzhak Avinu till the end of the Exodus, then you, there's actually a 400-year gap. Which means to say, what does it mean, Geri Yezar there's Your child's going to be a foreigner. Well, Yitzhak was a foreigner. The Inui may not have started yet, but the, 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 the foreign, being a foreign immigrant in another nation started when Yitzhak was born because Geri Yezar And that was true all the way for 400 years till his children left Egypt until they were actually free people or their own people. They had a national identity. That's why we're working out. Good, 400 years. The other way which Baruch, which Baruch was alluding to is... One, two, one, one second. Ah, there we go. Sorry. I can't, can't work out the help. There we go. Okay, good. Other way of doing it is servitude, which means to say that the way it worked is, is that, as, as Baruch said, Kate is the Gemara of 190, that Akadosh Baruch intensified or allowed them to intensify their, their servitude on us to such a degree that what could have been achieved in 400 years was compressed into the span of 210 years because they went beyond the scope of what they were expected to do. So it should have been 400 years, but the actual Inui was so intense that you know, they, they were asked to enslave us, they, they threw our children into the Nile, right? So, you know, and because of that, that intensification was, was meshed into, 400, into 210 years. In fact, the Vildagon famously says, I know I saw by Maru the chop, the cantillation on the words is and famously, if I'm not mistaken, he says that the commentary of Kadma Va'azla is 190. So the words actually Kadma Va'azla in the Aramaic means they got up and left. They went, how did they Kadma Va'azla? How did they get up and leave? 
They got up and left through the words, Vayamaru Eschayehem, meaning the cantillation and the words are interacting with each other. This is the will of God. Vayamaru Eschayehem, through the embitterment, the severe embitterment, that's how Kadmah of that they went early because it was all for intensified for that period of 220 years. Says the briskarot, when he's like, says the briskarot. Those are two beautiful answers. Yosak Avinu and the intensity of the, of, the, of, the, of the servitude. He says, what's what he's saying in that God of Chishu is the convergence of both of those counts. Think about this. It's true that we were foreigners for 400 years from the time of Yitzhak. It was true that they intensified our servitude to such a degree that it was compounded into almost a 50% of what it was supposed to be. But the beauty of what Chishu is, is that both those numbers converged at one point in time. At the exact same moment in history, the intensity had reached the scale of 400 years of servitude at the same time as 400 years of being foreigners at the same moment. That's the Chishu where it all comes together. What a beautiful idea the Briskorov is sharing. That's how history is converging. The Evangelists were pulling out a Chumash and trying to work out. That was Hashem's invisible hand in the, in, the, in, the, in the eaves of history. Very fascinating point. Let's move on. Another idea. Is it enough? So I don't know about you. Whenever we get to Dayeno, Dayeno is like, you know, you always have a question. You're like, really? You know, like sort of, we, 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 you know, we left there in the, in the desert, you know, without any food. Dayeno. I don't know. B'nai Shal didn't say that when they were in the desert. <laughs> Um, you know, saying so like when they were there, they, they, they had some pretty strong words to say about not being in the desert without any food. So, like you know, it's all very nice for us, you know, like sitting in the comfort of our dens, air-conditioned dens, uh, sipping a martini, to say, you know, if we'd been there, <laughs> that would be good enough for us. They weren't saying that. So, what is going on over here? How do we? How do we? Uh, how do we? What, what is Dayeno really go, what it really saying? So, for this, I'd like to go to to a really earlier an earlier source over here. Let's see if I can can get there. Um, and that is, this is actually the Haggadah of, um, um, let's see, it's Rabbi, Rabbi Eliezer Ashkenazi. Rabbi Eliezer Ashkenazi has the most fascinating uh, main rabbi here. He says the following. It doesn't mean to say, when we read our day, this is just a, just a paradigm shift of how we read in day. It doesn't mean to say that it's not necessary. You know, Hashem, that's fine. Thank you so much. What does it mean? It's a rhetorical question. The following is, would that have been enough? It's exactly the opposite. Hashem, would that have been enough? He has his example. He says, this, the, the way it works is like this. So what happens is the king says, you know, he sees a very promising young courtier who he believes is going to be a good governor. So he, he makes him the governor of a particular province or a city. But when he wants to now nominate him, he simply doesn't have the wherewithal to be this governor. So he says, He didn't have the right, the right wardrobe. So he gave him the right wardrobe. He didn't have any horses. He gave him the horses. He doesn't have any, any servants. No, they gave those to him too. The, the basic, you know, how to carry yourself as a, as a nobleman. You've still got to get a hold of this. But, um, the, um, a book which tells you how to behave regularly. He didn't have a palace. He gave it to him. So after this, a few years, the governor comes back and he wants to thank his king who appointed him and gave him everything. He says, well, Omar, the governor is saying, 
got, you know, king, I realized that without every single step of the way, I would not be here. It's simply not, not possible. It's not feasible. <coughs> we're sitting in the base of We're sitting in our air-conditioned den, sipping our martinis and saying, Hashem, you know what? The only reason we got over here where we have a base of and we're able to be able to walk to you and bring carbonos on Pesach is because... Every step of the way, we needed you. It wouldn't have been enough to be in the desert without the Torah. It wouldn't have been enough to be there without food. It wouldn't have been enough if, there, if the Avodah Zarah hadn't been struck down. I mean to say, it is all rhetorical. The only reason, <coughs> anachronistically, we can go to the end and look back at the beginning is because of you. We think back in our lives, just for a moment. We can do this in our own lives. You know, Baruch Hashem, we've been, we've been blessed in so many ways. If we think back and say, how many, how many forks in the road did we have that we made, we made decisions or opportunities avail themselves to us just at the right moment? And we say to ourselves, you know, Baruch Hashem, the right thing, the right time, people offered the right thing, those opportunities. And we say, you know, Baruch if it hadn't been for those moments in life, then how would we, you know, we simply wouldn't be where we are now, with single one of those decisions. You know, um, Eliezer just um, sent, me, sent me a beautiful story a number of, a number of uh, months ago um, about there was an individual in Israel um, who, was, who woke up one morning, he was in his 50s, and he woke up and he had, and he, he, he had trouble seeing out of his right eye. So he went, um, he went to, the, to, to his local doctor, and the doctor said, you know, this looks a little serious. I want you to see, um, I want you to see a top ophthalmologist in Israel. He made an appointment. Went there a little later. I got in the doctor said, you know, this looks really serious. He says, I, he says, I really think you need to, um, there's, there's a danger of losing vision. You need to go to America. One of the top ophthalmologists um, um, in, in the world. He, goes, <coughs> he, he immediately schedules a flight. No, no time to lose. Gets him to, uh, gets him to, to, to the ophthalmologist, and, the, and the, the, the doctor says to him, he says, you know, he says, I, he says, I'm going to have to operate. It's a very complicated operation. We have to do it really right away because I'm not, I'm not sure I can save the, even your left eye. And I mean, you can imagine the man. The man. This is like a, in the span of three days. A person who was relatively healthy, and then suddenly, within the span, the, 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 the notion of chassashal losing eyes, that most terrible, terrifying, terrifying notion. So he says to the he says to the doctor, if you could just give me a few hours, I just need to process this. It's like you know, it was such a shock to him. So he went. He went. He drove them to a nearby shul. And he sat in the shul, and he was going to start, you know, crying to Hashem. Hashem, how could you let this happen to me? And he decided he was going to go on a different tack. And he said, he, he said, Akash Baruch you know, Almighty, you've been so good to me. He says, and he started, and he started thinking about all the things Hashem did for him in his life. His wife, his children, his health up till now, his parnasa. There were bumps in the road. But at the same time, he started, and, he, and for, for two hours he sat there, and he cried, and he cried, and he cried. He said, Hashem, you've been so good to me. Hashem, please, please let me help. Please let it continue. He returns to the doctor. And the doctor, the, the, and, and the doctor, the doctor has set the date. He comes back, and they do a, a, a quick pre-op um, test. And the doctor said, "You know, it's actually looking a lot less complicated than I thought. The operation looks like it could be successful. I go through operation. The operation was in fact su- successful." The same Isaac cried in the cry of the tears of gratitude. Rav Cook in Rehova told the story over because the person lived nearby, and um, and somebody heard this. Called Rav Cook two months later and said, "Yeah, I've got to tell you something. I heard the share that you gave about this person who cried in gratitude." And I have, two, I have two daughters who haven't got married, 32 and 28 years old. And I, you know, I went to ends of the earth to, to, to help find the Meshiva. And as you know, it's, it's very complicated. He said, I came home and I said to my wife, you know what we're going to do? Let's sit down tonight. Let's write down. Just, we're going to close all doors, close all phones. Let's just sit down for a moment and write everything we're thankful for in life. They sit down and write everything. They spent two hours and they wrote down everything they're possibly thankful for. Pages and pages and pages of everything that I showed Akash Baruch was blessed enough. And he says, I've got to tell you, it's been a few weeks since then. Baruch Hashem, one of the girls is engaged, and another one's going out very seriously. I want to just tell you, it's all about gratitude. Sometimes when you think about the Dayenu, it's, it's about, and now these are, you know, of course, Baruch Hashem, it's nice to care about how it all works sometimes. It doesn't always work in the same way. But what the key over here is, is that rather than saying, Akash Baruch why, we say, Akash Baruch how could it be without you? That's what the Dayenu is saying is, 
every junction of the way, would it be possible to answer if it weren't for you, Hashem? Please, please, like our Baruch in our gratitude allow us to get further. This is what the Dayan is teaching us over here, and this is what Rabbi Eliezer is, is teaching us in his Agora. Let's move forward two last ideas, and with this we'll close. Playing with the gods. So, um, here we go. This is a very, very, very fascinating um, piece over here. The Aruch HaShulchan, um, written by Rabbi Chil Michal, Rabbi Chil Michal Epstein, um, is actually a very much a halachic work, which is why it's interesting that at the beginning of his, of his halachic work, he, um, he uh, has a, uh, a very interesting um, description um, over here. So Rabbi Chil Michal Epstein writes the Aruch HaShulchan, is really a mountain volume set on all of halacha, really fascinating, incisive, <coughs> decisive, um, <coughs> in a safer. And at the beginning of Hilchas Pesach, he talks about the following. He says a very interesting insight. And <coughs> Why is it in the end of the day that, that this month was, was decided? It is not, I know it's spring cleaning, you know, the rice at the same time. That's not the reason he gives. He says, <laughs> He says, the Egyptians' God was the land, right? So he says, um, he says, if you look up at the zodiac, the star sun is the tzleh, is the lamb. Right, it's their god. And Paro was very much um, dependent on the fact that he, this was the supreme month of power in Egypt. Even though in Borod already he was getting humble and he said, Hashem, you that you're better. He started, he started his head raised again in the plague of again? Because why? It was coming close to his month, the time where the Egyptian gods reigned supreme. That's why this month is the first of months. We'll see that the fact that we celebrate in the strength, at the peak of Egyptian strength, in the month of their god, that we shift their God, that's how we're going to see why it's the first of our months, to show that Akash Baruch was really in charge. Now you have to appreciate this, just at this point in time. At this point in time, the, the Israelites, the Hebrews, had, had no real schus accrued to their, their, to, to their day, if you think about it. You know, at this point in time, they were in bris right? They, they, they didn't even have bris They were so deplete of any mitzvahs. And Hashem said to them, you know what, you know what I want you to do? In the month, of your of their God, I want you to take their God publicly, tie it to your bedpost and shaft it. Think about this. This is essentially this is the this is the recipe for a genocide. If you think about it, and you say, you know, maybe they kept it quietly, it was in the innermost chambers. Says, no, 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 they were roasting it. Has anybody has anybody had a neighbor who barbecues every Sunday? Right? You know about it hours before the guests come. Why? You smell it. Imagine every Jewish household is going to be barbecuing their God. There's not, I, I doubt there was a single Egyptian in the entire Egypt who didn't know what was going on, right? What they're doing, in the month of their God, they're, they're, they're <coughs> sacrificing God. I want to show you, share with you just an article which, uh, we, we, which uh, I put away just two years ago. It's a really shocking article. 
This is an article in the New York Times. Mob attacked fueled by the rumors of cow slaughter has political overtones in India. This is a family that was affected. So here we go. I just want to actually show you what, what actually happened in this particular instance. This is in a small city in Bisada, India. The vigilantes of the Save the Cow sprang into action. The moment they heard the rumor that the cow's, uh, uh, cow's slaughtered remains had been found near an electrical transformer looming over the heart of this village. They quickly raised the alarm through text messages and phone calls. A local Hindu priest uh, was asked to alert the villagers from his temple or loudspeakers. Soon a thousand men had gathered by the transformer. There was no sign of that cow. Only some of all Hindus had been slaughtered. Nonetheless, the men proceeded through the zigzagging alleys of the home of the suspected cow killer, Muhammad Ikhlaq, um, one of the few Muslims living in the village about 30 miles east of New Delhi. Mr. Ikhlaq and his wife, um, Ikraman, um, were on the second floor patio dozing after a dinner and prayers. Suddenly the home was swarming with men. Mr. Ikhlaq heard someone shout, kill them, um, she... Her husband and, the, and her son, Danish, 20, retreated inside behind a thick wooden door. The mob shattered the door. And basically, they killed, they, they killed the man and dragged him into the street because of the accusations that maybe he was involved with, with the, the, the alleged killing of the cow. Now, of course, it's the New York Times, so you only have one side of the story. So there may have been a little more evidence. But let's say they even found the evidence. Let's say they even found a knife with his name at the, at the, at the killing of the cow. Do you understand? This is, this is 2015, folks. This is, this is really contemporary times. This is about the allegations of a killing of a cow, right? In the, um, and the cow is the one of the Hindu gods. Think about that. Think about what it must have been like in Egypt. This is one Muslim living in the Hindu community. Think about what it would have been for this, the, this lower class Egyptian society people to start taking their gods and slaughtering them in the month of the power of their gods. Now we can appreciate what the Arach HaShokhan is saying. That is one of the most transformative moments in, uh, in Jewish history, and that's why it is Rosh Chodashim for us, because of the power of that moment. Last and uh, last point, and this, uh, with this we'll, we'll close. Halal at dark times. Where is it uh, that the halal resonates with us in the Haggadah? We start just before the meal. I want, to, I want to go back to a really an earlier point in history when halal was, was, was said. It happens to go back to Sefer Shoftim, because everything in the world is in Tanakh, naturally. Um, and here is, here is what happens. The, 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 the Tanakh is telling us in Perak Vav Shoftim about a particular Shofet whose name was Gidon. Gidon, wasn't sh Gidon was not a Shofet at this point in time. Gidon was a young, young man who was, who was tending his father's uh, um, uh, flocks and uh, wine press. And was, you know, he lived at a time where there was a lot of oppression. In fact, at this point in time, the Midianites and all the Bene Kedem, all the eastern um, tri uh, tribes across the river, used to come in during harvest season and take <coughs> all the Jewish crops and go back to the, go back to the east. So this, they were living under oppression. There was no king. There was no sovereignty. There was no military power. And this is what, we, this is what happens: is is that Gidon is one day is on his way back from work by of Malach Hashem, and he sees an angel of God appear to him. And the angel says to him, "You know, Gidon, this is his initiation. Hashem is with you, strong man." Gidon, he says, "Look, master," and he speaks to this angel differentially. Is God with us? Is God really with us? He says, look, he says, you're telling me I'm a Gibochayo. You're suggesting that maybe I'm going to have some part in helping us. Are you, as a representative of God, are you really telling us that God's with us at this point in time? Is that really fair to say? I'm looking around. Every time my father has just this much amount of grain is taken by the Midianites and the Amalekim who come in with their hordes. We have no weapons to protect ourselves. We hide in the caves as they come in and they, and they pillage and destroy all of our grains. He says, we have nothing to eat. He says, and you're telling us Hashem is with us? How do, I know, how do I know that Hashem could be with us? Because I remember hearing what Hashem did in Egypt. Where did he hear that from? <coughs> says Rashi. This is Rashi translation of Rashi on this passage in Shoftim. It says the following. 
which of our forefathers told us? He says, it was Pesach. Meaning, when did this incident that he saw the angel happen? It was on Pesach. And he says, last night my father recited Halal and I heard him say, That's recounting the miracles that God performed on behalf of Israel. But now he has forsaken us. If our forefathers were righteous, they didn't perform wonders for us in their merit. And if they were wicked, then just as he did for them, undeserving wonders, so should he do for us. Where then are all his wonders? Says Gideon, I was at the Seder last night. I heard my father say, And I heard about how it worked out. It ain't working out now. And that's what, what is, what's the angel's response? The angel says to him, The angel actually is now is actually sad. And Hashem reaches out directly to Gideon and says, with this strength, you will become a leader. Meaning, what was the strength the most unfortunate thing? The fact that you defended Israel and you said you don't deserve the promise that we're in. That's going to be your strength. What's fascinating over here is historically, is what we see over here that Gideon is saying, and even at his time, people were saying, but say, and experiencing the cognitive dissonance of being like we started off in the Halach Ma'anya, being a Jew in exile, being not at the top of the, of the, of, of the totem pole, right? The, these were the days, my son, when we were number one. We're no longer number one at this point in time. That's what Gideon is saying. Rabbi Rosenthal of Yerushalayim would say on this. And this is, this is where this, and this is, this is the closing point, the most profound point. Not only do we see over here an access point to how people then experienced Pesach and Yitzhak Mitzrayim, and when Pesach Israel had an impact on people. But if you think about this, actually, the context of this is bigger. Gideon was not a religiously a religious individual at this point in time. Gideon's father, in fact, the, the time tells us, if you took him later, earlier, was bringing up, he was fattening a, 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 a calf for Avodah Zorah. They spent seven years fattening a calf for Avodah Zorah. Now, if you appreciate this, what's going on? They don't have food to put on the table because the Amaleka and the Midianites are taking their food on an annual basis. They don't have money. They don't have food to put on the table. What are they doing? They're fattening a calf for Avodah Zorah. Which means to say, what level of decrep, what decrepit level Israel is at this point in time? They're starving to death to be able to, to, to bring a korban for Avodah Zarah. That's where they're at. And nonetheless, on the night of Pesach, they still say, but say, and get on still able to say, wow, how does that work with the reality we're in? That is the beauty of Pesach. Pesach is a time, you may have a Jew, a Jew who's living in a period of oppression, who doesn't see HaKadosh Baruch Hu, whose father's fattening an eagle for Avodah Zarah. And at the end of the day, he's able to say, still on the night of Pesach, but say, it's still a point to remember. That is the magnitude of that night. And that's what keeps us throughout all generations. <coughs> Rabbi Sai wishing us all a meaningful kind of Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.